welcome back to this week's winners on 88.3 FM, WXOU. Max Verstappen wins the Austrian Grand Prix and once again he's crushed the opposition at the Red Bull Ring. James Harden, a deep shot. Oh, what a catch! George Springer's doing it all tonight. William Carlson looking for a second short-handed goal in his many nights. And shot score! What a goal! Through his own legs! It's over. The Bucks have done it. The long wait has ended after a half century. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions once again. But inside to TJ Hawkinson. Touchdown Lions. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's Winners on 88.3 FM WXOU in all sports news and commentary show with myself, Benjamin Trader. So glad you could join me today to talk about all these fantastic sports. Uh, follow me on Twitter at TWW Sports to follow along and interact with me throughout the week. Catch what I have to say about events in real time, because sometimes, you know, uh, couple days go by before I'm able to talk on this show about some events. So uh, check me out on Twitter at TWW Sports. I hope everyone's doing well. It's been a very interesting week for me uh, over the weekend. I, I moved to a new apartment. Uh, so my entire life is in boxes right now. Uh, and I went to unpack my PC discovered that the power unit is fried on it. So today I'm going to have to replace the power unit on that in order to get this episode of this week's winners edited for Spotify and all the other podcast networks. Still though, I am very glad to be here for another episode. Might be a little shorter than usual, but don't worry, we're still going to talk about some great sports today. Uh, we'll talk about the NHL. We'll open up with a, a little bit on the Red Wings as well. Uh, we'll talk about some motorsports. Of course, IndyCar had the Music City Grand Prix over the weekend, which most people are viewing as an overall success and uh, one of the biggest underdog upsets in a long time. I will talk about the Tigers for the first time in a while. And then we have something special. I want to talk about Calvin Johnson the end of this for a little bit so plenty to get to so let's get to it now so for nhl we have a couple notes from the week today carter hart signed an extension with philadelphia keeping him as their goaltender for three years at the pretty low cost of four million dollars a season on average a pretty good signing if you are Philadelphia because he was your lights-out goalie two years ago. The problem is, and why I believe the salary is a lot lower than a lot of people anticipated, is he was horrible last year. He, he was one of many reasons that Philadelphia was not even close at the end of the season to the playoffs. So I think he is an amazing goaltender. 
And, and with this three-year deal, I think after it's done, I think then they're going to be talking about more money for him because I think he's going to once again play out of his mind for the next three years or for the majority of the three years. Uh, if Philadelphia can get him some help on defense besides Ivan Provorov, I think that he'll be doing pretty good in Philly. And then uh, something that's got me a, a little bent out of shape. Uh, some people are defending it, but y- you guys can make your own opinions on it. Darnell Nurse signs an eight-year, $9.25 million deal to stay with the Edmonton Oilers. So he's, he is paid more than Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, and Connor McDavid makes 12-something. Uh, and he's right in between there. At nine two five now, and I think there's a lot of media in Edmonton that are defending this move. That are like they've got their four core guys locked up to long term deals now, and this is their core that they want to keep moving. Core player or not, I I think it's hard to say that Darnell Nurse is worth nine point two five million dollars a season. I think that is that is a hard pill to swallow. If you're Kale McCarr and you're in Colorado and you're making less than Darnell Nurse, you've got to be livid. You've you, you got to be sitting around thinking, man, I should have waited for him to sign that deal. So he could have used that as leverage when he was making his nego- negotiations. So, and this is a problem too that, that I talked about last week with Edmonton, that their general manager, Ken Holland, this is exactly what he did in Detroit. This is exactly what he did in Detroit is he would give players that, you know, had decent seasons or, or, you know, were pretty loyal to the team. He'd give them a ridiculous term and he'd overpay them. It's why Detroit, why the rebuild, is couldn't be a retool where it had to be everything got tore down and rebuilt is because it was way past repair when we had these deals that were way too long. And now he's in Edmonton and he's doing the same thing. I don't think, you know, the, the jokes and everything around Connor McDavid requesting a trade eventually, I don't think that's out of question, like out of the question. I, I think he very well could request a trade out of Edmonton if things go as far south as I think they're going to. Because you, these players, Darnell Nurse, you know, Zach Hyman even, has like almost $6 million a season, I believe. And that's a lot. You're going to, they don't have any cap space right now. And so while they have their their four core guys that they that they love so much, right? They don't have anything else. It's not the same league that it was when Ken Holland was able to build these really good teams where, you know, you could get away with having a really good top six. And then, you know, your bottom six is a bunch of AHL regulars. It's not that type of league anymore. Every team has, has so much parity to each other that you're going to have your your big guys, right? And then you're going to have the people who are the middle, middle six who are going to forecheck really good. And then there's teams that have great goal scoring in their bottom six still. 
Edmonton doesn't have that. And they haven't really done any changes besides adding Zach Hyman, really. And last year, they had two players have 100-point seasons. And they weren't even close to a Stanley Cup because their bottom six was an anchor. And it's still going to be that way. They didn't They didn't do anything to address that. They just went and, and locked up Darnell Nurse for $10 million for eight years. So I, I don't think anything's going to get better in Edmonton. That's my take on it, though. They can prove me wrong. You know, hockey's one of those sports where you tend to think you know something and then you get proven wrong. I mean, you can look at the Canadians. They made it to... Stanley Cup finals and everyone kind of thought they were out of it. So I, I don't think Edmonton will come anywhere close, but in a couple months, maybe we'll readdress it and talk about how wrong I was or how right I was. Moving on though, uh, Thomas Tatar, a former Detroit Red Wing, uh, signs with New Jersey for $4.5 million for two years. I like this deal and, and I don't really like how his time with Montreal ended because Thomas Tatar is a tremendous player who can score some goals at big times. He's proven throughout his career and in Vegas, you know, he was a healthy scratch. And then in Montreal, I believe he was a healthy scratch too. Although there were rumors that he was injured too, but at the end of the day, the Habs really didn't want him. So I think he's a player that's been mistreated and hasn't found a place to fit in. I think here in New Jersey, with the with the changes that New Jersey has made in the offseason, which, by the way, New Jersey has, you know, quietly had one of the better offseasons. You know, they bring in Hamilton. They bring in Bernier. And now they bring in Tatar, too. They're, they're going to have a pretty good look next year. I, I was big on saying that the only reason they were at the bottom of their division was because they were in the hardest division in hockey plain and simple you know they just they were really good you know and they were developing well but I mean when you were playing against the 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 Penguins you know the Caps better teams in your division the Islanders it it, you know they just weren't there yet and I think in the next couple years they're gonna be a good team if Nico Heischer can stay healthy Jack Hughes continues to develop well New Jersey is gonna be a good team And then uh, some Detroit news before we get to some more on Detroit. Uh, Jakob Vrana is probably going to head to arbitration for his contract. Uh, His asking price is closer to $5.25 million, while Detroit is asking for $3.5. So likely going to be in the middle there somewhere after arbitration. I think it actually is closer to what Verona is asking. I think that's very similar to what Anthony Mantha made in Detroit. And I I think he fits the same role that Mantha would. So I I don't think that $5 million is a bad cap hit for Verona when he's going to be a mainstay in the top six. And you have a ton of cap space, even if you, you know, give a million there or a million here, you're still going to have a lot of cap space. But then again, that is Iserman's plan is to weaponize cap space. So he wants to have 
as much as he can. And then John Cooper is named the head coach of Canada's Olympic team for next year. I think a lot of people are forgetting that the NHL schedule this year has an Olympic break in it. So we're going to see NHL players in the Olympics, and that's going to be awesome to see. And, and John Cooper, of course, the head coach of the two-time Stanley Cup winning now Tampa Bay Lightning. So we'll see how Canada can do. The Olympics are going to be a lot of fun to watch. And now I want to talk a little about about the Red Wings. I kind of teased last week that I wanted to kind of try to predict what the Wings would look like out of training camp. And it's it's not super simple as to look at it and say, yeah, it's just it's all the additions we had and all the players that were on the team next year. Because I think this is a year where there are some players that could make the team out of training camp, you know. So, Moritz Seider, first of all. I think as long as he has a good training camp and he stays on the trajectory that he's been on, I think in all likelihood he'll join the team, but it might only be for a couple games. might only be for those nine games. I, I'm uncertain. I, I don't want to say that he's definitely going to, you know, make the team. If he has an amazing training camp, I think that he might stay with the team and he continues to play well in the NHL. But the biggest thing is, over the offseason, Steve Eiserman has gone out and he's added a lot of defensemen. So I think getting a spot on defense this year for the Wings is going to be much, much harder than it was last year. You have the new guys coming in like Jordan Osterle and, and Nick Letty. And it really is an abundance of defensemen now where it's kind of hard to predict what they're going to look like. I see Hironik and Stahl being the first pairing. I see Troy Stetcher and Nick Letty being the second. Unless... They bring in, you know, one of their really young guys. If they bring in Sider, maybe you want to pair him with Letty. Maybe you want to pair him with Stahl. But still, I see Hironik and Stahl as the first pairing. Troy Stetcher and Nick Letty as the second. And then DeKaiser and Lidstrom as the third pairing. Because I think Gustav Lidstrom, I think the expansion draft told us just how important Steve Eiserman thinks he is to this team. I think that... he really fits in with the defenseman here. And I think he's played great. I think he has the ability to move up through the pairings too. But for now, I'd see him starting the year on that third pairing with the Kaiser. And then on nights where they where they run seven defensemen, 13 forwards, I see either Juice or Osterle being the seventh defenseman. But again, it's a good problem to have where it's going to be competitive and, and these defensemen are going to be fighting for ice time, especially if Maurice Seider is ready and he ends up playing with the team all year. And then uh, the obvious one, the easiest thing to predict, Nedeljkovic and Grice are probably going to be splitting the ice time, much as Bernier and Grice did last year. 
And then a lot of the forward, so predicting the forward lineup, a lot of that depends on having a healthy Bertuzzi, having a healthy Larkin, having a healthy Fabry. And I think that's also very important to how the season progresses. Because I think a top line of those three would be favorable, what they'd look for, having Larkin, Fabry, and Bertuzzi. But they did show last year that they liked playing Fabry at center, much as he did in juniors. So if they go that route, you know, you move him to the second line and you bring Vrana up, but it's interchangeable at that point. I think Vrana and Zadina are, are really two that you can throw into the top line in either of the spots. I think Larkin, you, you leave as the first line center. But even then, as the season goes on, I'm sure they'll experiment. They have their new second line center in, in Pew Suter. And, and I think they have a very formidable top six. I think that it's going to do some damage. They're going to be able to find the back of the net more as long as they stay healthy. When they, if People forget that when this team was healthy, like when Fabry wasn't injured, when Larkin wasn't injured, when Bertuzzi wasn't injured, which was for a very short time, they looked very entertaining. They were fun to watch, and, and they had their chances. And now I think adding Pew Suter to that second line and Verona, Zadina, you know, really developed a lot as the season went on. I think they're going to be able to find the net a lot more. And then you throw in Michael Rasmussen, who saw tremendous improvement over the season. He likely starts as the third line center. And then Joe Valeno joined the team late last year too. He'll likely see some time on the third line or the middle six, you know, might see some second line minutes, but you know, they might look to develop him with the team as well. But Grand Rapids is always an option for him too. Though I'd argue that he's spent quite a bit of time in Grand Rapids that I think it might be time to just pull him up. Uh, Adam Ernie had his best season to date, uh, he'll probably be a mainstay in the bottom six. I couldn't see him going anywhere. And then you have guys like Franz Nielsen, Evgeny Shveshnikov, Mateus Brome, Valtteri Filippola, uh, Mitchell Stevens, Vladislav Nemestikov. They're all going to be battling for time in the bottom six. But yeah, the way I see it, the top line is Larkin between Fabry and Bertuzzi. The second line is Suter between Zadina and Vrana. And then you have Rasmussen between Valeno and Ernie. And then you have Mitchell Stevens, who is a newcomer, if you're not familiar with that name, uh, that we traded for in the absence of Luke Glendening, who signed with the Dallas Stars. And then, so Mitchell Stevens between uh, Valtteri Filippola and Vladislav Nemestikov. And again, all that is assuming that we don't have any players making the team out of camp. And that's, you know, I don't really see the defense changing all that much because with how many defensemen 
Detroit now has, it's a no-brainer for picks like Edvinson to take their time to develop, whether that be juniors, whether that, you know, is overseas in Sweden, whether that's in the AHL. You have so many defensemen now that aren't terrible. You know, it's a pretty good defense that why not, you know, even more at Cider, you might as well give him another year in the AHL unless he really steps up and proves that he's ready to play in the NHL. And the same goes for goaltender Sebastian Kosa. I think with two great goaltenders in Thomas Grice and in Nedeljkovic, I think that it's a no-brainer that Sebastian Kosa will be given years to develop in the AHL or in juniors. I don't think they, I don't think he sees time in the NHL for, for years to come, you know, three, four years even uh, before he's considered, but he's also a tremendous talent and he's a very, very tall goaltender. So I could see him, you know, joining the team if he really progresses through the ranks and, and continues putting up tremendous numbers. No one really knows what to expect, though. I mean, the Detroit Red Wings, without a doubt, are going to be a lot better this year. A lot like how they were a lot better last year than they were the year before. Uh, They're a team that this year, definitively, you're going to be able to say you're proud of them and you're proud to be a fan because they're going to play some entertaining hockey. They have, you know, a top six that can compete with any team in the league. And their bottom six has gotten better. Their defense is the only thing questionable, but they're, you know, they're growing their defensemen. You know, they're taking their time. And when Edvinson's ready, and when Maurice Sider's ready, when Gustav Lidstrom develops a little more, we're going to have some amazing, amazing defensemen. And that's, you know, eventually we're going to start bringing in free agents like the big fish in free agency, eventually I could see us getting down the road uh, to help scoring depth. But for now, I mean, our top six is good. Our middle six is solid. And if you have a bad year this year, next year is a stacked draft. So, you know, if we have like a, a year where things start not going the best, then you always can think towards next year where you can get some draft currency. And then if you have a really good year, but not like good enough to be competitive in the playoffs and, and say Thomas Grice is playing really well, or even Nadelkovich is playing really well, the trade deadline, you can start thinking, you know, a team's definitely going to need a goalie because that's always how it works. So there's going to be a lot of moves made and this team is going to be getting a lot better. And I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for my season tickets is what I'm excited for. Also, but it's going to be great. I can't wait to watch the Red Wings when they get underway this October. Everything's going to be great in Hockey Town once again. So we'll shift gears to the next sport then, which is NASCAR. Uh, And we'll talk about Watkins Glen International Speedway. But before we get to that and talk about the Cup Series race, We'll talk about the Xfinity Series race, specifically the race winner. 
and that being Ty Gibbs. So uh, I've talked about Ty Gibbs before on the show. And it's because he he's phenomenal. He, he's 18 years old. And this year, he has seven ARCA wins. He's won seven races in the ARCA series this year. And he has followed that with now three wins in the Xfinity series. He never raced in trucks, really, you know. He, he went right to Xfinity series. And he's proven that, I mean, he went to Watkins Glen, a road course, and he beat A.J. Allmendinger, who is a career road course racer. It's what he's, you know, he's a road course ringer. And he beat Austin Sindrick, who is known for being tremendous at road courses and the defending series champ. I mean, he is something special. He no doubt needs to mature a little bit. Uh, I mean, the race at Mid-Ohio that I believe A.J. Allmendinger won is a, is a good example of how much he needs to mature. Because he got out of the car and he was mad that he lost. And he said, you know, they were, they were racing like crazy. And they were just trying to win the race. And, and he goes back to Arca. And he has a couple wins this year in his series where he's just flat out wrecked the person in front of him on purpose to win the race. And, and that's not respectful racing. What he sees in Xfinity series, you know, for the most part, people are going to give him space. They might beat and bang a little bit, but they're not going to wreck you on you know, intentionally. And he's done that a couple times in ARCA, which is a shame. But at the same time, there's people who are like, man, he can't win a race without wrecking people in ARCA. Well, he's gone to the, you know, the second best racing series in America. And he's won three races this year as an 18 year old. So he obviously has tremendous upside. And I think that giving him time to mature, I think next year, without a doubt, I think it might even be confirmed already that he's going to be full-time Xfinity series. And he's a Toyota driver, so it's in Toyota's best interest to keep this prospect, who's probably the best prospect they've had in a very long time. And they lose a lot, a lot of prospects. I mean, you look at, they lost William Byron, who raced for KBM. They've lost a ton. Christopher Bell, they almost lost. They were able to get him into the 20. They've had a hard time getting their young drivers into cup rides because there's not that many, you know, there's only Joe Gibbs racing and now 2311 racing where that are Toyotas. So obviously he has the Gibbs last name. So it's a no brainer that eventually he'll probably race for Joe Gibbs racing. But I mean, I also think he's going to deserve it. It's not, purely going to be off his last name because I think he's going to go to the Xfinity series next year. And I think he's going to win it. I think he's going to win the Xfinity series easily next year because you look at who's going to be fighting for the championship and you might have AJ Allmendinger still there, right? But colleague racing is going to be committing a lot of time and resources to cup series racing next year. And you look at Sindrick, who's going to be going Cup Series racing next year. You don't have to worry about him, who's arguably the best in the series. You're still going to have Al Geyer and maybe Gregson if he stays at Junior Motorsports. 
but you're going to be the favorite. I think Ty Gibbs, without a doubt, as he gets older especially, is going to develop into this all-around driver. He's going to be a juggernaut because he just proved that he can win on a road course. He won earlier on the Daytona road course at the beginning of the year. So he's been great. I see him in all likelihood fighting for wins in the Cup Series. I think he's very comparable to Chase Elliott. And I think that they definitely have different personalities. I don't think there's really anyone in the Xfinity Series who's going to come close to challenging next year. And, I mean, maybe Josh Berry, if he continues racing for Junior Motorsports, if he's able to get full-time sponsorship, I think Josh Berry is someone who's going to be fun to watch and is going to be very good based on how well he races at short tracks. Maybe Sam Meyer, or Mayer, rather, if he ends up going full-time to junior motorsports as well. But still, I don't see anyone standing up to Ty Gibbs. I really think that he's going to, I think he's going to be a fan favorite because he's got the temper of Kyle Busch. He has the racing expertise of Chase Elliott. I, I mean, he is a very entertaining driver, if nothing more. He can win races. He has the wow factor that, you know, you don't see often in these young guys anymore. So I think without a doubt, he's going to be a cup superstar. And I see him racing for Joe Gibbs very soon too, because I mean, you look at it, Denny Hamlin's getting pretty old. Kyle Busch is getting pretty old. Martin Truex Jr. is, I think next year, going to be the oldest driver in the cup series garage after Ryan Newman retires. So in fact, he might even be older than Ryan Newman. So I know he's in his 40s. So Kevin Harvick, I think, is actually the oldest. But you look at that Joe Gibbs lineup, and, and aside from Christopher Bell, they're all getting pretty old. So you leave them in Xfinity Series to win some Xfinity Series championships, and you can bring them up eventually. And, you know, that's not to say that there's there might be room for him sooner rather than later because there might be some more Toyotas. 2311 is looking to expand, you know. There's rumors of a Chevy team that's going to be switching to Toyota. So he might have some space yet. So with that, then, we'll get into the Cup Series race. And the top 10 was as followed. Kyle Larson once again wins. Uh, He does that quite often, especially this year. Uh, followed by Chase Elliott, who made a valiant charge at the end. Uh, Martin Truex Jr., who led quite a bit of laps yesterday as well. Kyle Busch had a pretty solid day inside the top 10. Then Denny Hamlin, William Byron. Christopher Bell had a solid race going before he was spun by race winner Kyle Larson, unintentionally, of course. And then Kevin Harvick, Chase Briscoe, two Stort Haas Racing Results that are pretty good following a couple weeks ago when the upset win by Eric Almirola happened for Stort Haas. And then in 10th, Tyler Reddick builds on his lead over teammate Austin Dillon for 16th in points for the playoffs. Matt DiBenedetto 
comes home a solid 11th. He's still looking for a ride for next year. A driver that is not looking for a drive for next year, though, is Ross Chastain. He finished 12th and over the past week on National Watermelon Day, no less, he was named the new driver of the number one car for Trackhouse Racing. I guess not really the new driver because technically Trackhouse bought his team uh, and it came down to either Chastain or Kurt Busch. And I think with Chastain signing here, it likely means that Kurt Busch is going to 23-11 racing. But good for Ross Chastain. He's going to stay in the Cup Series and uh, look to get his first win. Then Bubba Wallace finished 23rd with team owner Michael Jordan in attendance. That's of note. Michael Jordan, a lot of people thought that, you know, it was just, you know, for the name purpose that he was going to buy into the team, but he wasn't really going to have much to do with the team and he'd never be around. I mean, Michael Jordan went to the Pocono race a couple weeks ago too. So he's been around and he goes to the races and he watches his team compete. So it's kind of disappointing to see that 2311 really has not done anything of note this year. Hopefully Bubba Wallace and company will be able to get things under control and start getting some consistency, top tens and, and fighting for wins. I mean, they have not had anywhere close to top 10 speed this year or even race winning speed. They're way far off from that. So hopefully they can get things figured out. I, I mean, I know they weren't really ready for this year. So next year, if they expand, especially, hopefully they can get their team where it needs to be. This race saw a lot of action. One of the biggest things was uh, Team Penske had a lot of trouble. Brad Keselowski, who started from the pole, spun early, right before the competition caution, right in front of his teammate. And then later, he locked up and spun out and collected his teammate Joey Logano this time, which ended both of their chances, you know, pretty early in the day. I think Logano ended up finishing in the 20s somewhere, and Keselowski was in the 30s. So they were both taken out of the race pretty early on. And then Ryan Blaney saw a spin himself coming into the bus stop. So a very troubling day for Team Penske. Uh, all three of them being caught up in incidents. And then Hendrick, Team Hendrick, is back on the rise course Kyle Larson wins and Elliott was able to rebound from a pre-race penalty that saw his crew chief ejected and he got I think a 10 point deduction for the penalty as well in driver and owner points. Uh, William Byron and, and Alex Bowman were kind of irrelevant today. Byron did finish in the top 10 but really didn't have race winning speed as Larson and Elliott did. Uh, really, Team Hendrick didn't have things figured out from late June until now, even despite Chase Elliott winning on the 4th of July at Road America. I think that they really didn't have the speed because 
most people believe that NASCAR was policing them pretty hard because there were rumors going around that they were finding more horsepower. They were doing something that was able to sneak past inspection and getting, you know, cheating, essentially. And uh, after you're accused from that, NASCAR says, all right, we're going to start watching you because of how dominant you've been, which is, you know, usual for NASCAR. If, if a team is really dominating, you'll see NASCAR start paying a little more attention, taking a, a close eye on them. And I think that that led to some struggling because Hendrick wasn't really able to get away with what they were getting away with. But I also think that a lot of people forget that Hendrick often has, you know, pretty bad summer months. You know, you can recall a couple times throughout history where June through August, they just weren't very good. They start the season well, or they end the season well, or they start and end the season well. Usually not both or all three. And I, I think with uh, the dominance that they showed early in the season, I, I think that it's still not out of the question that you know, two of their cars, three, maybe even all four of them can go very deep into the playoffs. I don't see all four of them into the final four because that would be ridiculous and crazy. I mean, it would be good for them and it'd be a historical moment, but I don't see that happening just because so many things can happen. But with three races before the regular season ends and with the Indy road course next week, Michigan, and then Daytona to end the regular season, those are all three tracks that Hendrick excels at. I see Larson winning at Michigan. I mean, he won at Michigan with Chip Ganassi. So I could definitely see them winning at Michigan. I could see them. I mean, they just won at a road course this week. So I could see them winning at the Indy road course even. And then Daytona is a, you know, a very team oriented track that I could see all four of them doing well in if they can escape the big one. So we'll see if their drivers can make some noise in the playoffs. But as for the race at Watkins Glen International, the goal bowling at the Glen, it was a very clean road course race. A lot of people like when there's the chaos and the wrecks and everything, and uh, I don't mind that. But at the same time, it's good every once in a while to see a good solid race where they, they stay out of each other. They don't make a fool of themselves. You know, I, I think that it was a very, very solid road course race. Aside from, you know, the Penske incidents and then um, Larson spinning Bell, it was very clean, uh, which led to some mixed strategies that led to very interesting final laps. Uh, I was watching Chase Elliott rail in Larson, I mean, and, and sometimes he'd gain eight-tenths of a second, and then he'd gain half a second, and then he'd gain a full second a lap. And he was closing hard, but he just ran out of time. If he had one more lap even, one or two more laps, Larson was catching traffic. It was slowing him down enough that I think Chase really would have had a chance. And I think that this would have made the race ending a little better. But overall... Good to have NASCAR back after a two-week break. And good to have Watkins Glen back after a two-year break. 
So overall, a solid 7 out of 10 for me. It would have been better, like I said, if it wasn't so cut and dry at the end. And if we would have gotten to see a little bit of a battle between Larson and Elliott, I think it would have been pretty cool. But all in all, a very solid race. I'm not disappointed at all. Watkins Glen is always a very good road course to watch. And then next week, of course, we have the Indy road course, which I'm sure will be awesome as well. And then IndyCar. So, I don't have a ton to note on this, uh, but IndyCar is clearly trying to break into new markets. It's trying to regain the popularity that it once had. And the winner of the Music City Grand Prix was Marcus Erickson. And on lap four of this race, Marcus Erickson slammed into the back of a car and flew through the air. He, I, I'm not kidding when I say that he almost did a backflip. And that car landed back on all four wheels and won the race. They, they, they had nose damage. They ripped the nose off the car. They pit. They put a new wing on it, raced their way to the front, battled for the race win against Scott Dixon, and then won the race. It was one of the... You could have never predicted that after lap four. I mean, I saw the replay of him flying through the air. I'm like, yeah, that car's out. And then later on, I saw that it won the race. And I was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. So absolutely special from Marcus Erickson, who I don't think won a race in eight years before this year. He won one other time earlier in the year, and now here he is again after that, which is one of the most improbable wins in sports history after flying through the air. I mean, you look at any other sport. I mean, NASCAR, if your car leaves the ground and comes back, you're not repairing that. In Formula One, if, if you're if you breathe on a car wrong, you have to retire it. So the fact that it got airborne, it landed, and was able to win the race is baffling to me and is something just so special. I don't think anyone would have ever guessed that. And then, you know, I, I think it was kind of in part that a lot of the competitive drivers crashed out of this race. Will Power wrecked a couple of his teammates during this race. Uh, he was just being a little too aggressive. Uh, Alex Rossi and Padua Ward had a dust-up. Colton Herta crashed out. Uh, he was favored to win this race. Uh, Scott Dixon finished second after the battle. James Hinchcliffe, the Canadian, comes home third for a podium. Great to see Hinch in the top three. It was a very, very unpredictable race. I see a lot of IndyCar fans and motorsport fans in general comparing the this Nashville street circuit to Baku in Formula One. And I can see it. And I think that the biggest thing to take away from this is that IndyCar now knows what the product looks like on the track so they can mold it into something they want now. They can they can take it and say, hey, you know, this corner wasn't the best. We could we could change this corner. We can add a passing zone here, a breaking zone here. You know, 
I think the track will see some changes. They're going to keep the bridge because I think everyone was like, man, IndyCar's racing over a bridge. That's so cool. So I think they want to leave that. But other than that, I mean, the track and the racing was decent, but definitely very narrow as street circuits usually are. But I think there's a couple of things that they could change. And now they, they know that for next time. The biggest thing to take away from the race was how many fans went to it. The track turnout. It, it became an instant favorite. So many people showed up to Nashville to watch that. I think they're in the right market. I think Nashville is a huge, huge market for motorsports. So I think if you bundle IndyCar and NASCAR for a weekend, I think you'll, you'll have massive, massive fan turnout. Have NASCAR at the fairgrounds and then have... IndyCar at that street circuit, and you'll have yourself a full weekend of crazed motorsport fans there. And that would be in their best interest. All in all, very good event for IndyCar, and I do see it becoming a tradition. It's a no-brainer that they'll be back next year and the year after that, probably. We'll move on now, talk about the Tigers. 15 minutes remaining here, so... The Detroit Tigers right now are 54 and 60. And they have a chance to draw within three games of 500 as they have three straight games against the Orioles coming up. And really since May and really since the All-Star break, the Tigers have looked very good. They've looked like a solid baseball team. And everyone knows that Miggy's coming up on 500 home runs here. And uh, I think Akil Badu has cooled off a bit since his red-hot entrance to the Major League Baseball. But all in all, the team's been looking very good since May. I I think Grossman's impressed me. Jonathan Schloop is deserving of an extension, as he's gotten two years, I believe, two or three years for him. And I think for Schlope, he's a, he's a big, big hitter. He comes up with big hits. I remember him before we even got him when he played for the Brewers. I was very impressed with him. So good to see him get an extension. I like the fact that he's staying, but what does that really mean for the team going forward? And the biggest issue that I, I anticipated them fixing in the draft, and they didn't. I'm sure we all remember that they picked a bunch of pitchers. But the biggest thing I thought they were going to fix was that issue at shortstop. And and until they fix that issue, I I think their defense is not going to be as good as they'd like to field. And and I also see them having an issue in the future with deep hitters. You know, Miggy's getting old. And uh, I don't know. I mean, Derek Hill hit his first home run the other night, but I don't see him consistently hitting home runs. We all know Badu can hit. And obviously, Shloop, well, Shloop can hit very well as well. So the pitching is is definitely the deepest area that we have right now, especially after the draft. But going forward, the area that without a doubt needs to be fixed is shortstop. And hopefully, you know, some of our young guns can, you know, 
turn into career hitters, and that'll that problem will solve itself because I a lot of nights here, you know, a lot of the games this season that we've lost but have been close, it's because our offense goes into a shell and we're just unable to get the runs that we need and the hits that we need at the right time. So I've been impressed with, you know, pitching. I've been impressed this year with the the defense besides shortstop. So as long as we can field a better shortstop position, and that's got to be something that I think that they would have looked at in the draft, and I'm, I'm still baffled that that's not something they changed and not something they would have drafted. So now they might look to free agency, but who knows what they're going to do with that. I mean, they're still years out of being super competitive. This year has been a treat because they've actually been fun to watch. You know, and you look at last year and they weren't really the most fun to watch. And this year, the fact that they're almost 500 is, you know, they're, they're nowhere even close to the worst team in baseball right now. Nowhere even close. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this year is that at least they're competitive, you know, and they, they play hard against the teams that they play. And it's not an easy win when you come to Detroit, especially since we've had some great fan turnout at Comerica. So, and especially as this team gets better, you're really going to see Comerica Park fill more and more. And, and when this team is, you know, back competing for World Series a couple of years, you know, four or five years, America Park is going to be a hot place to be at. And then finally today, the last thing I want to touch on, Calvin Johnson was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And it's very deserving. And I am, I'm super happy that he was. And, and I, being a fan of the Detroit Lions, I was very disappointed when he retired. But even at a young age, I think I kind of understood why. And Calvin Johnson, that's the only Lions jersey I've ever owned. And I thought watching him was special. And I knew he was a special player, as I think everyone knew he was a special player from 2007 when he was drafted. And losing sucks. I mean, it, it, it drains a lot out of you, especially when you lose quite as much as the Detroit Lions have, as much as their franchise has. He was part of the 0-16 team, and he never won a playoff game. You know, he was never able to take his talents to the biggest stage. And that's got to be disappointing. And now that he's a Hall of Famer, it really puts into perspective that he had a Hall of Fame career during one of the worst times a franchise could have in any sport. The Detroit Lions were abysmal from the time that he was drafted really until the time that he retired. And there were some 
unfair things here and there. I, I remember one play, he caught a ball in the back of the end zone, and it, they deemed that he let it go too soon, so it wasn't really a catch, you know, and the Detroit curse and all that. But he had a Hall of Fame career on one of the worst teams in NFL history. He he really never got what he deserved. In 135 games that he amassed during his career, he had 731 receptions for 11,619 yards, 83 touchdowns. In 2012, he had almost 2,000 receiving yards. Whenever the ball got to him, he would catch it. And even Matt Stafford, I mean, he'd, he'd throw it way over his head, knowing that he'd be able to catch it because he, he could just get up way above other players. He was a very special player, and when he was paired with Matt Stafford, I mean, I feel like we were watching Magic. Even though the team, more often than not, had a losing season and, and didn't win anything, right? Watching Matt Stafford throw to Calvin Johnson, you know, a late game Hail Mary or something, and watching those two play together and watching Calvin Johnson especially make the catches that he could make, you know, it's it's no wonder that he's in the Hall of Fame, but it really makes you wonder what could have been, like what he could have won on another team if he was drafted uh, on another team. You know, even if he plays for Green Bay, if he plays for any other team, if he has the same receiving yards that he has, if he has the same amount of touchdowns, if, if he's the same player, like how much another team could have gotten from that? Super Bowls, even. It's, it's a shame. I mean, he played his heart out for 0-16. He played his heart out everywhere in between, and it's heartbreaking to hear, you know, what he had to say even, you know, when he said that he really didn't even like playing football anymore. Losing drains a lot out of you. It really does. It can make, you know, what you love not feel appealing anymore, and it's, it's a shame. But he is every bit deserving of being in the Hall of Fame. And I, I'm proud that he was a Lion, even though, you know, he said last night, you know, how much he appreciated the fans showing up, even though they were losing. So, it, he was a special guy, special player. So, very deserving of being inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. Anyway, though, for next week's winners... NASCAR visits the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course. Uh, the NFL preseason is underway this Thursday, I believe. Football's back, and we'll have it every single week until the Super Bowl. I know everyone's excited. I'm excited. So we'll be talking a lot about football once again, and we'll talk about plenty more next week, I'm sure. But that's going to be it. For this week, thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're tuned in from, thank you so much. A reminder to follow me on Twitter to keep up with me during the week. That's at TWW Sports. Until next week, everybody, I will talk to you later.
You've been listening to this week's winners on 88.3 FM, WXOU. Thank you.